to grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, you'll notice we've got some under the chairs there. So feel free to grab one of those. And the Bibles we provide, it's page 973. 973. And we're going to be looking today at how salvation is by faith from beginning to end and among the nations. As you're turning, let me pose a question before you today. Has anyone ever challenged you with the simple phrase, start the way you mean to finish? Start the way you mean to finish. Whether it's a new job, a new degree, a new school year, a new relationship, a new project at work to work on, a new church plant, start the way you mean to finish. What does that mean? It means to do things at the beginning the way you intend to do them at the end. In other words, if you start well, you will finish well. Well, have you seen someone start so well only to see them head downhill faster than you could imagine. Have you seen that? We see that a lot in relationships. Uh, the, one, one of the things I enjoy doing is, is marriage counseling, premarital counseling, postmarital counseling. We had Seth and Michelle in our home this week. They, they've been married two months now. Hey, and they've started, they're doing amazing. They've started really well. Um, and they're doing awesome. By the way, didn't they do a great job leading us this morning, Seth and Michelle and Joel. Thank you guys. Thanks for stepping in. Did a great job. But you, you look at relationships sometimes. And you see relationships after years that seem to be heading downhill fast. And, and you see relationships that grow farther and farther apart. And you ask, why? And you know what? For the most part, we could probably answer it. Here's what happened. They stopped doing the things that they did at the beginning. I mean, you know how relationship starts. I mean, you watch Seth and Michelle, they can't even like, they're probably holding hands like, no, he's got his arm around her, you know. You care for them, you love on them, you say nice words, but as time goes on, those words go from compassion and love to harshness. The physical touch that you used to just, you couldn't separate each other. Now you don't even want to sit beside each other. You guys know that. You've seen it. You, you've watched relationships. You've watched marriages from the back and you see this trajectory of where they're heading. And what do you want to do? You want to scream and you want to say, hey, look at what you used to do and do that. Do the things you once did when you started. That describes Paul's attitude towards the Galatians. He's writing to this church that he personally was involved in seeing planted and started, and he saw them start so well, yet now they are on the brink of disaster. Look how he addresses them here in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. You see that? He says it again 
in verse 3. Are you so foolish? The reason for the harshness of his language is because he sees the trajectory that they had started so well, and yet they are on the brink of disaster. Look here in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. His concern was that his investment in them and their response now would have left and led to vanity. And so he is appealing. So far as Tanner's been preaching through Galatians, Paul has been appealing to them using his personal career. He talked about how the gospel came to him, how he met Jesus, and how he continued, and, and God called him to be a, a gospel, a, a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, when we come to Galatians 3, he's turning from appeals to his own career to appeals of their own experience. He's going to remind them of how they first came to faith in Christ, and then he's going to appeal to Scripture as we look at the latter part of verses 6 through 9. And his main goal here is to defend the thesis that Tanner laid out for us last week, the thesis that justification is by faith and not by works. We see that in Galatians 2.16. Just look back there. In 2.16, Tanner did a great job last week of unpacking this, what Paul says, Yet we know... That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see today that it's not just important that you start well and right in the Christian life. It's just as important that you finish well in the Christian life. And so we're going to start, first of all, by asking this. How did the Galatians start? And that leads us to our first truth we see today. They initially started by, they initially received the Spirit by faith. Look here with me. And we're going to read verses 1 through 2 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What we see here is that Paul starts a series of rhetorical questions, many of which he doesn't even answer. Who has bewitched you? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a series of questions. and just, He says, who has bewitched you? That's the first question he asked them. It's as if they have come under the spell of these false teachers and they are turning from how they began receiving Christ through faith, to now a lifestyle of relying on works. And so he reminds them of their initial conversion experience. 
So this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend a few minutes just asking, okay, what was this initial conversion experience like? First of all, we see that before they initially received the Spirit, they heard the preaching of Christ crucified. We see that here in verse 1. Listen to the language of verse 1 here. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's proclamation of the gospel was so vivid when he proclaimed the gospel to them that he can say it was before your very eyes that he was publicly portrayed as crucified. That initial proclamation where they heard Paul preach was vivid for them. Paul could not understand how after that so vivid proclamation of the gospel, how they could ever get caught up in legalism. I mean, just think about it. What does the cross communicate? I'll ask it another way. Why did Jesus have to die? When we look to the cross, this is what it communicates. The cross communicates that Jesus, the perfect man, deserving of eternal life, died for my sin. My sin my death, my condemnation, the cross points to how hopeless and lost I am. The cross kills my pride, but it magnifies the love of God. So we look at the cross and we say, Christ died for sinners. That's why I had to die. It, it is also the dawn of our hope. The cross is the picture that the, the crucifixion is completely sufficient for my salvation. It is finished. Every sin, past, present, and future, was paid for on the cross. Paul's saying, how could you ever forget the picture and meaning of Christ crucified. It's what he says here in chapter 221. Look at what he says there in 221. He says, I do not nullify the grace of, of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what Paul's doing, he's saying, look, your present actions are so foolish. You're relying on works are so foolish because they contradict the work of Christ on the cross. The very message that was so vivid before your eyes. Christ died for sinners. So they initially heard the preaching of Christ crucified. But not only that, they believed the preaching of Christ crucified. We see this question posed in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? When he's asking them, did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive the Spirit? He's basically asking them this. How were you initially saved? How were you justified? Was it by you relying on works of the law, by you obeying God's commands? Or was it by hearing that Christ did the work, that Christ was perfect, that Christ died for your sin? Was it by hearing that and believing? The NIV says, instead of the hearing with faith, this is believing what you heard. Now, 
Paul doesn't answer this question for us here. But the answer is implied. How did you receive the Spirit? No, it wasn't by works of the law. It was by the hearing of faith. And we see here in Romans chapter 10, we see Paul make this evident and clear in other parts of Scripture. Romans 10, look at this. He says, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? Right before this, Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he follows it up. Well, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? If I'm going to call on Jesus well, then I've got to believe in him first. But how can I believe in him if I've never heard about him? And how will I hear unless somebody tells me? And so he says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The Galatians did not work for their their salvation. God did not give them the Spirit because they were deserving, because they were good, because they were righteous. No, God gave them the Spirit because they heard the message of Christ and believed. The message of the gospel is this. God is the one who works. He works salvation through the provision of His Son. All we do is believe. And so as a result, what do we see happen? The third truth here. As a result, they received the Spirit of Christ. This is the first reference of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. And we're going to see later on, Paul unpacked this in greater detail, what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. But Paul's reminding them here. You didn't receive the Spirit because you were circumcised, because you kept the Sabbath, or because you performed any works for God. You received the Spirit because God worked for you. And this pattern is the pattern of Scripture. Let me show you another one here. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How did the Holy Spirit come to you? You heard, you believed, and you were sealed. I mean, there are tons of theological implications for this. Let me tell you this. If you have have heard the gospel, even today, as you hear my lips and as you hear the word tell you that Christ died for sins, as you hear it, if you have responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, you have the Spirit. You have all of the Spirit. God God didn't give you a portion of the Spirit or some of the Spirit. He gave you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. If if you are a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit. In, In Romans 8, 9, Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to me. And so if you've responded in faith, you you can embrace this today, that not only has God saved you and justified you, He has given you His Spirit which later in Galatians 4, he's going to say, is the spirit of my son. It's the spirit of Christ. In other words, in Galatians 2.20, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Let me ask you this. How does Christ live in you? It's through the spirit. 
The Spirit is the, son, the Spirit of the Son. It is the Spirit of Christ. So the way you live by faith in the Son of God and the way Christ lives in you, it is through the work of the Spirit. Paul wants them to see, and his main concern is this, that their actions were so foolish because their own experience of receiving the Spirit when they responded to the gospel and belief should teach them that salvation is not by works, but it is by grace. Their current actions were contradicting the work of the Spirit in their lives. And this leads us to the second truth. It's not only important that you start the Christian life by responding in repentance and faith, the hearing of faith, it's also important that you keep going in the Christian life through faith. So you initially receive the Spirit by faith, and then the second truth that Paul wants to see here is this, is that we're to daily live in the Spirit by faith. And so I pick up here, beginning in verse 3. He asks another question. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. Here's how you started. You started by the Spirit, by hearing with faith and you received the Spirit. Now, are you going to try to be perfected? Are you going to try to grow in godliness? Are you going to try to live the Christian life based on your words? You see, they were in danger of trying to live the Christian life in such a way that nullifies the grace of God, and that would lead to destruction. So let me just pose a question for you. You may be here today and you say, hey, John, I've received the Spirit. I have heard the message of the gospel, and I have believed it. Here's my question for you. How, after becoming a Christian, are you supposed to grow to maturity in Christ? You believe, you're saved, you receive the Spirit. Now how do you grow to maturity in Christ? How do you grow in godliness? Do you move past all this gospel stuff and all this believing stuff and now, man, start a list of rules? And say, okay, now it's these rules that I'm supposed to keep and, and these rules will make me accepted before God? Is it now by relying on my own works to be pleasing to God? Here's the answer. I'm going to pray that God helps us to see this and embrace this because this is, this is the key to the rest of your Christian life. The answer is this. God sanctifies you the same way that he justifies you by hearing with faith. Did you get that? The same way that you start the Christian life is the same way that you live the Christian life. We love quoting Tim Keller here where he says, the gospel isn't the ABCs as if you learn your ABCs and then you move on to greater things. The gospel is the A to Z that the Christian life beginning is rooted in the gospel and the Christian life till the end is rooted by faith in the gospel. But you're probably asking this, how does my hearing with faith lead to my sanctification? Let's look here Let's read this again, verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected 
by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? The answer is the same answer that was the answer to to verse 2. It's by the hearing of faith. So does he who continues to supply the Spirit and do works among you. Does He do this because you hear and believe or because you rely on the works that you have done? It is by the hearing with faith. So so I just want to tease out for a second. How does my hearing with faith and the work of the Spirit result in sanctification? You got that? What's my role? I hear with faith. What is God's role? He sends a Spirit and I am sanctified. God's role. We, we taught a series back in August called The Spiritual Disciplines. And we started out by looking at Philippians 2, where it says, work out your own salvation as... Anybody know it? God works in you, both to will and to work towards His good pleasure. Work out as God works in. So... As we think about sanctification, there's God's role and there's my role. God's role is sanctification is a work of God by His Spirit. Just just like justification is a work of God in me and for me by the Spirit. The Spirit grants the power so that I'm free to do God's will. I love what John Piper says here. God is the workman in my justification and God is the workman in my sanctification here. But then what's my role? If if the work of sanctification is the work of God in me by His Spirit, my role as I work out is to hear with faith. Let Let me help you think through this a little bit. I want you to think about your own conversion experience. When you initially heard the message of the gospel that Christ died for sins, and that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That initial experience where you initially placed your faith in Christ and you were saved and you received the Spirit. Remember, I want you to reflect on that. And and if you you don't have an experience like that, maybe I pray that's today. How does that happen? Well, I'll walk through my experience. I'm seven years old. I remember that morning a pastor given a devotional, and, and I remember just being overcome um, with emotion and affections, realizing that, means something was not right in my life. And me and my mom go for a walk. I remember this vividly. My mom is taking me for a walk, and I'm trying to explain for her what's going on for me. And, and she knows what's going on. She knows it's the work of God in my life, and she shares the gospel with me. And here's what she, I mean, the basics of the gospel, that I was created to worship God. God, I was created for God. God is ultimate. God is supreme. But, but because of me, I was born a sinner, and now I've become a sinner in practice. I have rebelled against God, and because of my sin, I deserve death, punishment, condemnation. God, man, sinner, Christ. My mom tells me the good news that Christ died to bring me to God. And the way he brings me to God is by paying the penalty for my sin. And she's quoting verses. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. She's quoting Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for me while I 
was still a sinner. Christ died for me. God, man, Jesus response. And then she says this. She says, John, the Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible says that for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's believing in the work of Christ. My mom tells me this and she says, John, today if you will call upon the name of the Lord, if you will turn from your sin and place your faith in him, you will be saved. Now how was I justified? And what was the work of the Spirit in that? As my mom was sharing the words of Scripture with me, the Spirit inwardly was convicting me and opening my eyes so that I would do what? Hear and believe. She's saying that I'm a sinner. Those are just words. That does nothing for me. I need to hear that and say, yes, that is true. And believe, I am a sinner. I need to hear not just that Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for me. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. I need to believe Christ died for me. I don't just need to hear that if I'll call upon the name of the Lord, I need to hear that and believe that and respond and call on Jesus. You know what happened? I did, and God justified me. God works my justification through the Spirit and my response is hearing with faith. The way God sanctifies you is the same way. I'm going to flesh this out for you for a little bit. The primary battle of the Christian life is won or lost in the mind. I want you to think about when's the last time you blew it and gave in to temptation? There's a wrestle going on inside of you. There's a battle going on in your mind. I want to throw a few verses I want to reflect on with you. Romans 12 here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let me show you another one here. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Christian life, the battle, the way we daily live in the Spirit is by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. I'm going to help us walk through this. The Spirit works powerfully in me. And my mind is renewed as I set my mind on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? If to set the mind on the things of of the flesh leads to death, if I'm going to set my mind on the things of the Spirit, what am I going to be setting my mind on? What about the Word of God? Is there any connection with the Word and the Spirit? You guys know this. Ephesians 6. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me ask you this. How did God inspire this? We call this the very Word of God. How did He do that? By the Spirit. We learn in 2 Peter 1 that this, that human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit that led this to be the Word of God. This is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. Now get this. The Spirit works powerfully in our lives as we set our mind on the Spirit-inspired Word of God and believe. 
You hear us talk a lot here at Redemption Hill about the Bible. Hey, you need to pray the Bible. You need to read the Bible. You need to me- you got your meta memo there on your worship guide today. You need to meditate on the Bible. You need to memorize the Bible. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. There's no magical thing as if I just carry this around that I'll be perfect. I'm just going to take my Bible. I'm going to, you know, paste it all over me. How does reading, praying, meditating, and memorizing, how does this become powerful in my life? It's when I believe it. Faith is the only response that makes room for the work of the Spirit in my life. I love what John Owen here says about faith. I got a quote here for you. He says, faith, making the soul poor, empty, helpless, destitute in itself, engages the heart, will, and power of Jesus Christ for assistance. So let's practice this. I want to help us practice this. I got a psalm for us. Psalm 34. What would it look like for you to hear this with faith? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You, you open up your Bible tomorrow morning and you end up on Psalm 38. And you, Psalm 34, verse 8, and you hear, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. And you're confronted with a truth claim. Is the Lord good or not? You've just lost a child. You've just lost your job. I don't know what circumstance you've got in your life. And you read this. The way this becomes powerful in your life is when you hear it with faith. Yes, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You're going to be challenged tomorrow to take refuge in a ton of things. Go take refuge in in some substance abuse, some relationship, in a job. And this says take refuge in him. That is the person that's blessed. Do you you believe that? Will you hear it and believe it and say yes? What about this? Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You know how you're going to be tempted this week? Satan's going to tempt you with this. He's going to say, you go pursue God and you're going to be missing out on all of these great pleasures of the world. How do you fight temptation? How does sanctification, the pursuit of holiness happen? It's when you take up the word of God. And you believe it. And so when I'm tempted by the lies of Satan this week, I say, I say, Satan, I hear you, but it's a lie. This is what is true. That is how the word of God works powerfully to produce sanctification in you. And so the essential mark that Paul's getting at here is not how far you are along in the Christian life. It's what are you relying on? So let me ask you this, what are you relying on? Even sitting here today, are you relying on your own good works that are making you acceptable to God? Are you daily falling on your knees in desperate dependence on the Spirit and the Word of God to change your life? That's what Paul was challenging the Galatians with, that they should not only initially receive the Spirit by faith, but daily they should live in the Spirit by faith. The same way that you start the Christian life is the same way that you live it. Daily, I hear the word of God and I believe.
Let's continue on. The third truth that Paul wants us to see today. He wants us to know that salvation has always been by faith. He turns from their experience now in verse 6, and he's going to start appealing to the authority of Scripture. And let's be honest, the ultimate authority is not our experience, not the Galatians' experience, it's Scripture. Scripture is the final source of authority. And so through the end of chapter 4, we're going to see a battle for the Bible. In these next few weeks as we continue to preach, it's going to be Paul going back to Scripture, defending the thesis of justification by faith. And how, what does he do first? First he goes to Abraham in verse 6, and he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he's saying, hey, take Abraham as an example. I'm going to use, Paul says, I'm going to use Abraham as an example to teach you that salvation has always been by faith. And what he does is he quotes from Genesis 15. I've got it here for you. In Genesis 15, let me just, who's, you may be asking, hey, you're new to the Christian faith, who's Abraham? We find about Abraham early on in Genesis. And we can see him, his lineage being traced. You start with Adam, and you go to Seth. And from Seth, you, you see him traced all the way to Noah. And then Noah's genealogy traced all the way to Abraham. We find about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And God says, Abraham, go to some country that I tell you. We're going to see Genesis 12 in a second. But he does that. In Genesis 15, we see this promise. It says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. What happened in Genesis 12 is God had told Abraham that I am going to make you into a great nation. And so Abraham's thinking, how am I going to be a great nation? I don't have any kids. So God says, this, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Tanner earlier read from Romans 4, which is a reflection, another reflection of Paul on this. And, and the way Paul describes his faith here is that, that Abraham, even looking at the deadness of his wife's womb, and Abraham lo even looking at how old he was, believed that God was able to do what he promised. It says Abraham grew strong in his faith. He was able to do what he promised. This is what God said to Abraham. You're going to be a great nation. I'm, your, your offspring is going to be as, as numerous as the stars of the sky. And Abraham said, I believe that. He heard and he believed. Well, let me ask you this. Why does Paul hold up Abraham? Well, let's just think here for a second. Abraham was justified before he was even circumcised. We don't find out about circumcision until Genesis chapter 17. This is Genesis 15. So Paul, Paul's basically saying, hey, Abraham was justified and he hasn't even been circumcised yet. And so he's telling these Judaizers and Galatians that, hey, you who are saying you've got to be circumcised for the work of the Spirit, hey, Abraham was justified and it was before he was circumcised. Second, Abraham was justified, and this was even before the great display of faith of offering Isaac in Genesis 21. Abraham was justified before the law. The law was not even given until Exodus 20. And I would even argue that the message of the Pentateuch, Moses, who wrote it, is this. The law will not justify you. Faith will. Look at Abraham. 
So Paul was holding up Abraham as a picture of genuine faith. So here's the deal. Just as the Galatians had heard the preaching of the gospel and believed, Abraham believed what God said and was counted righteous. Abraham is a picture of saving faith. Now look here what Paul continues to say in Galatians 3 in verse 7. He draws some conclusions. In verse 7 he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Here's the first thing you need to get. If, 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 if being a child of Abraham and being justified is not contingent upon circumcision, well, it's not dependent upon physical descent. It's contingent upon spiritual descent. They were saying you had to be circumcised. You, you had to have a descent to Abraham. And Abraham said, no, here's who my sons are. My sons are those of faith. What does he mean, those of faith? Those who rely on faith in Christ. And then another implication, look at verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What does he mean by this? It's not only that it's not by physical descent, it's spiritual descent. It's if, if you will be like Abraham the man of faith, you will inherit the blessing of Abraham. How do you become a son of Abraham? You respond to Christ in faith. So, so Paul goes to the very beginning of Scripture, and his highlight is this. Salvation has always been by faith. The last thing I want you to see today is that I want you to know that salvation has always been for the nations. Look here in verse 8. We're going to spend some time in verse 8 and then wrap up. Paul writes, In the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Let me ask you this. How can Scripture foresee anything? How can an inanimate object... See things. What's Paul doing? Who is, who is actually foreseeing things here? Is Scripture foreseeing things? God is. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed by God. This is the Word of God. So when he's saying Scripture foresaw, he's saying God foresaw. He wants the Galatians to know that they were on the mind of God from the very beginning. So here's the question. What did Scripture foresee? The Scripture foresee, it foresaw that all the nations would be blessed. I'm not going to throw it up here, but go and spend some time in Genesis 12. This initial call to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And it says, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Has it ever crossed your mind that God was not just initially concerned with Israel, but that from the beginning he was concerned from the world? Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with what? Worshippers. 
If Genesis 3 doesn't happen and Adam and Eve multiply, they reproduce themselves, those who are living in step with God, and they fill the earth with worshipers. You've got the earth filled with worshipers. Sin thwarts that. But we even have a promise in Genesis 3. God says to the woman, there's going to be an offspring of yours that's going to come and crush the works of the serpent. Who was that promise made to? Was it made to Israel? No, it was made to Eve, the mother of all the living. That promise was for the world. And we continue to move on and we come to Abraham and we see, hey, why did God choose Abraham? God chose Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. And we could say even Israel. Why was Israel chosen? They were chosen so that they would be a blessing to the nations. So as we wrap up, guys, don't tune me out because I really want you to get this. You cannot embrace the blessing of Abraham without having a heart for the nations. If we were to go to the the Gospel of Matthew, you know how the Gospel of Matthew begins? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you know how the blessing of Abraham comes to you? It comes to you through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so Matthew begins his gospel by highlighting Jesus is this promised one who's going to be a blessing to the nations. And you know how Matthew ends his gospel? He ends his gospel with the Great Commission, with Jesus, the son of Abraham, saying, hey, go see Genesis 12, 3 fulfilled. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to see it fulfilled through making disciples of all the nations. The way Genesis 12, 3, and the way what we read here in 3, 8 is fulfilled is as the church owns the mission of God and sends missionaries to the ends of the earth. And so you cannot say, I want the blessing of Abraham and say, I don't want my heart to be stirred with compassion for the nations. At Redemption Hill, our mission is to see the unchurched in greater Boston transformed by the gospel and turned into global Christians. If you've been coming for a while and you're trying to figure out, hey, I mean, what's this church about? What, you know, what they really want from me? What are they trying to do? I've got an arrow. This is it. This describes it. If you are in our staff meetings, in our elder meetings, we pull this out and we say, this is what we're about. We evaluate our budget and we say, how's our going to budget see this happen? You'll see on the far left is Greater Boston and on the far right is what? The world. And what we're wanting to do is run everybody through this arrow and say, how can we move them, somebody living in Greater Boston, to see them impact the nations with the gospel? And get this, this isn't just what we run our leaders through. We believe that every Christian ought to be working through this. And so as you think about this, and, and everything we do here, this isn't just over the, because they're a church and that's what they do it. Everything we do is about seeing the gospel taken to the nations. I love what J.D. Greer, a pastor in North Carolina, says. He says, we want to measure success, not by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. And we really want to own that at Redemption Hill. We don't want to just keep filling up seats, and that's great, because we want to see greater Boston reach with the gospel. But we want to be saying, how many people are we sending to plant churches in greater Boston, in New England, in North America, and to the world? So let me ask you this. How will you impact 
the nations with the gospel. I'm going to give you four steps. And what I want you to pray through as we wrap up and even as as we sing here in a second is this. What is the next step that God wants you to take to impact the nations with the gospel? The first step is this. You need to respond to the gospel. You cannot take the blessing of Abraham to the nations until you've embraced the blessing of Abraham yourself. You've heard me today proclaim the gospel. Have you responded with faith? Have you said, yes, I believe Jesus died for me? Have you confessed your sin and called upon Jesus to save you and forgive you and turn from your sin? If you have not, do that today. I beg with you right now, stop. If you haven't done any, stop right now and call upon God to save you. You're saying, hey, I've responded, but I haven't followed Jesus in baptism. And that's what, the, that's what Jesus commands. Go make disciples, baptizing them. We're going to have a baptism service coming up within the next couple of months. Maybe that's the next step for you, man. I believe, and I want to go public. Why baptism? It's going from the inside to the outside. I want to show everybody that I'm following Jesus. The next step, you're saying, hey, I have followed Christ. And the next step is this, is to begin prioritizing the rhythms of grace through dependent discipline to daily live in the Spirit by faith. If you're going to impact the, the nations and be a global Christian, man, you've got to be a healthy Christian. And you've got to be prioritizing the means of grace. And so if it means, hey, if you means you saying, hey, I need somebody to come and teach me how to read the Word. I need somebody to teach me and show me how to pray. I need to get in a community group. Man, why don't we do community groups? That's just not just a churchy thing. We believe community groups are essential to, to raising up global Christians. Maybe you say, you know what? I've been coming to this church for a while. And it's about time that I plant my feet and say, I'm going to join this church. And you know how we describe membership here? We say it's joining the family and joining a mission. It's saying, I'm going to be a member here because I really want to be about seeing the gospel impacted with the nations. So maybe you've even been to a class, but you haven't taken the next step and filled out your intro form. Or maybe your next step is, I need to go to a membership intro class. Maybe it's, man, start stewarding the rhythm of stewardship, your time, your talents, your treasures. Third step. The third step is to begin making disciples in greater Boston. Before you make disciples among the nations, I'll just say this. I mean, start looking at who are your neighbors? Who's in your family? Who are your coworkers? Who are your friends? We've got movement cards. They're going to be on the table over here. And we, these are just resources to pray through people. But the, making disciples in greater Boston is not just the unreached. I want to ask you this. Who was another believer in your life that you can say, you know what, let's get together, and I want to encourage you in the faith. Let's read the Word together. Let's pray together. Maybe that's the next step for you, just to initiate that. And then the final step is to begin making disciples among the nations. You say, John, that's a huge task. How am I going to do that? I'll just give you three words. Pray, give, and go. You know what? You're in a community group. Maybe, maybe you say, "What? Well, I want to take the lead of my community group because all of our community groups support missionaries. And I want to take the lead of my community group and I'm going to own our missionaries and I'm going to make sure they're getting prayed for and that we're encouraging them. We pray for missionaries every Sunday. Pray, give. And you know, not everybody's going to be able to go. But some of you, God, God's going to... I want you to know this. Every dollar you put in the offering plate today, tw- over 20% is going to impact the nations with the gospel. So you want, you want to be a part of this church and see the nations impacted? Man, financially give. Help, help a student who wants to go this summer 
or over Christmas or over spring break on a mission trip to say maybe Toronto or we're about to adopt a, a partnership with India. You know what? The goal is to send teams three times a year. And it's probably going to cost a couple thousand dollars every time for a person to go there. But we believe we won't see the, the gospel taken to these unreached peoples. We do a great commission offering once a year. 100% of it goes to the nations. And then go. You may say, John, man, I'm busy. Let me, let me ask you this. Would you be willing over the next year to save up a week of vacation and say, I want to go take the gospel to the nations? What is the next step God wants you to move? To move toward become a mature Christian in Christ and impacting the nations with the gospel. This is what we're about. Join the family. Join the mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the gospel. God, I pray that you would open eyes and you would lead non-believers today to respond and to believe that you would save people today. God, I pray for us believers that you would give us faith to hear your word, to hear a Psalm 34 and to believe it daily as we're in your word. God, I pray that you would continue to equip and use redemption to impact the nations with the gospel. God, we want to see missionaries and laborers sent out to the ends of the world. God, we pray you would bless these efforts in Christ's name. Amen.